We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. I'm Cheryl Broderson, and I'm in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are so excited to bring you another woman worth knowing. Yes, indeed. And <laughs> we are back in the Middle Ages, aren't we? Well, and the Reformation. Reformation. We're kind of bridging, yeah, because we had Elizabeth of Hungary before, and that kind of tied in, actually, with the Reformation, Bartbury right. Castle. Right. And now Bartbury. we're kind of going back through some more... Uh, some more aspects of the Reformation, but I we're guess going you to could France. say. Different countries. And today, yes, we're going to continue on with France. So um, Cheryl, of course, shared on Renee of France. We're going to kind of piggyback off of that. And so what's really cool is that there's kind of a common denominator with a lot of these women that we're looking at, even going back with Elizabeth of Hungary and that heart to serve, heart yeah. to serve others, Yes, and regardless of position. And that's what we'll see here because... Like Renee, the gal I'm going to talk about today, Marguerite of Navarre, was also a member of the French royalty, part of the royal family of France, but used her position, her influence to support the Reformation in the country of France. In fact, Marguerite is considered the first reformed princess in history. Wow. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. First. And yeah, she was the first one. What's so, number two? I don't know. Would that be Renee, maybe? And then her, Marguerite's daughter? I don't know. Yeah, so... <laughs> Marguerite uh, also... We know it wasn't Marie Antoinette. Let's just make that yeah, clear. Let's yeah, let's make that clear. She... Oh, definitely not. Let them eat cake. <laughs> so Rebecca Van Dudeward said that French... This is quite a statement. French Reformed Christians owed her much, Marguerite. Without her influence and protection, the French Reformed Church would have been crushed before it was even formed, which is quite a statement. So, mm -hmm. I mean, she really made sure that this movement not only thrived, but actually even stayed alive. Which is... You know, later there was so much violence against the Huguenots oh, and the so Anabaptists much. and against the Reformed. Mm -hmm, I mean, the mm -hmm. Inquisition in France was It was brutal. so bad. And so, I mean, it's, yes. yeah, it so probably her never would have even happened. Right. Her protection was, I could see how important that would be. Yeah, very vital. Mm -hmm. So she was born in April of 1492. When Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that's what was going on in another part of the world. So <laughs> that's, I love putting it kind of in perspective. Yeah, like that what was too. going on so yeah, mm -hmm. around the world at that time. And uh, she was very close to the French throne, like I said, so close that it was actually her brother, Francis, uh, who was in line in the line of succession. And so he became uh, King Francis I in 1515 after Louis Twelfth, who I believe that was Renee of France's father, I think. So there's like quite a connection here. I don't believe they were actually blood related, but there was definitely a connection here. They're all kind of in the royal court together during that time. Renee was about 18 years younger, though, than Marguerite. So actually, Margaret King says that Renee was strongly influenced by Marguerite, who had been her protector when she was a child and orphan at the court of Francis I. So Pretty neat how these folks are all kind of linked together and the like-mindedness in that heart for and the Lord. And probably the inspiration, too. I mean, this little girl is getting inspired. Mm. And, you know, there's something about a loving older woman mm. that is so inspiring. Totally. Take note, women worth knowing. That's right. <laughs> hint, hint. So, oh, and another random connection. Francis was also uh, Marguerite's brother, Francis, Francis I. He was also the grandfather of Francis II, who was Mary Queen of Scots' husband. So, right. I mean, the weird. Dauphin. The, Dauphin. the Dauphin. Yep, exactly. Dauphin. So, yeah. there's so many weird connections who, with European Mary monarchies. Queen of Scots probably poisoned. Yeah, so we've got... <laughs> 
So much intrigue, folks. Oh, yeah. You want to hit all of these episodes. You know, that's why to find a Christian royal is in the court of France is exceptional. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, okay, so Marguerite has this royal heritage, which is definitely going to come in handy. But more importantly than that, she came from a godly heritage Mm. because her mother, her and Francis's mother, Louise of Savoy, really wanted to see reform in the church. Mm. So she had a true, genuine heart for Jesus. And she was grieved by what was going on in the Catholic Church in France. You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is that in the 1300s, like the court of France had been so corrupt and, Mm. you know, tied in with the Catholic Church that they actually had started a persecution against the Knights of Templar because they knew that the Knights of Templar, you know, they kind of had a bank and they held people's treasury uh, for them and they wanted the money. So they began to torture the Knights and falsely accuse them. And that was collusion between the Catholic Church and the The royal throne in France. So it's interesting. So, Uh, you know, probably these things would have been known to, you know, her parents. Well, in the 1300s, that's when the Great Schism happened, Mm -hmm. when there was a pope in France and a pope in Italy. It was just ridiculous. And so there was so much decadence in Mm -hmm. France, like you Mm -hmm. said, that that collusion between the church Mm -hmm. and the and the government. It's so, I mean, wow. <laughs> Not a healthy collusion either. Not Ungodly. at all. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but fortunately, again, there's this woman, Louise of Savoy, um, in the French royalty who says, man, things need to change. Oh, that's okay. Now, it's interesting because Francis apparently did not share his mother's views. He ruled France as a staunch Catholic, probably because it was safe. That was mm-hmm. the safest course. But Marguerite really responded to her mom's example and mm-hmm. that godly, you know, relationship that she, the relationship she had with the Lord and just her mom's love for Jesus was so inspiring to her. And so Marguerite, likewise, became very devoted to the Lord when she was young. Um, by the f- time she was 15, one of her biographers said that the Lord, sh- Lord shone brightly through Marguerite's mm-hmm. eyes, face, walk, speech, and in all of her actions. She was described as being tall, slender, and regal. She had violet eyes and long blonde hair. Mm. Um, she was not considered like a beauty necessarily. Not, not even that she with was... lavender eyes. Yeah, geez, you think violet <laughs> eyes? My gosh, yes. that's a that's it. That's a clincher right that was there. Elizabeth Taylor's <laughs> attribute. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, that's so funny. Yes. Well, maybe it was just you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Who knows what they were looking at in the 1500s as a beautiful person? But anyway, so she was, but she was, um, like I said, regal and. There, she was attractive. It wasn't like, oh, whoa, she wasn't like booty ugly or something. But uh, she had a charming character and intellect. Um, very, very smart. One biographer said she had a heart devoted to God and loved mightily to compose spiritual songs, as mm. we'll see in a minute. So Marguerite married Charles, the Duke of Alencon, at age 17 and lived quietly there for about six years before coming to the royal court on a more regular basis, joining in with her brother and stuff like that. And this marriage was really just a political marriage. There were no children. It was not a love match in any way. Mm. And so it was just kind of a, this is convenient politically. Let's make this alliance kind of a thing. So at some point during this time, we don't know exactly when, Marguerite apparently was truly saved, really gave her life to Jesus. Again, she had her mom's example. And so she eventually came to know the Lord for herself. And by the early 1520s, she was already starting to become really involved with the Reformation and espousing the views of the Protestant reformers. So Marguerite and Francis were very, very close um, siblings. In fact, sometimes when Francis's wife was ill, she had chronic illness. And so she would be, you know, just taken out of the picture 
from time to time. And whenever that happened, Marguerite actually stepped in and filled in ceremonially as queen. Wow. Kind of interesting. So that's how close they were, mm-hmm. that he would trust her to like be there for affairs of state and stuff like that when his wife was unwell and unable to be there. But Francis did feel that the reformers were dangerous. Like I said, he mm. ruled as a Catholic. I think mm-hmm. that was just the safe course. This is what you do. And well, keep, there were all those wars that stable. were going on in Germany. Oh, there was so much so going on. So you could see the unrest. You could see yeah, where he scary. would look at it suspiciously. Absolutely. And he's trying to secure and keep his throne in exactly. France. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so he never came around to his sister's Protestant views, but he really respected her. And so... Because they were so close, he tolerated it. In fact, when he had taken the throne in 1515, he said, My sister Marguerite is the only woman I ever knew who had every virtue and every grace without any admixture of vice. That's quite a statement. That is. Like, Especially this, from a brother. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. This is the only woman I trust, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she had a lot of favor with him. And it's neat because even though he didn't himself become a Protestant or, you know, really have, I don't, not that we know of a genuine relationship with the Lord, the Lord gave her that connection with him to open doors and to, again, provide favor so she could further the Protestant cause. And she was unafraid of potential repercussions. And so she just started using her royal influence in whatever way she could to protect these folks. Of course, to further the cause of reform, but also for the sake of protection when persecution was happening because it did break out quite a lot in France. And so mm-hmm. the interesting thing is Marguerite never actually officially became a Protestant. She never officially broke from the church. Uh, I mean, she might as well have been because of the things she wrote and said. But, but again, they started out as reformers. Exactly. She they only want to see change. the church clean. Yes, you exactly. Know? Not They didn't. Protestant came after the Reformation. Yeah, it, it, was, it came out of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. the term Protestant. I think I've said before, was invented in 1529. It was, you know, over 10 years after Luther Mm -hmm. actually started Mm -hmm. reforming. So they wanted just change within. So her heart for reform actually really began with a guy named, oh boy, here we go, a French name. (laughs) (laughs) I looked this up beforehand. Jacques Lefebvre de Taple. I don't know if I said that right, but something along those lines. <laughs> he was one of the founders of the French Huguenot movement, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so the Huguenots, that was kind of just the French term for the French Catholic Calvinists. Sorry, French Calvinists, part of the Reformation. And so de Table, he actually had published a commentary discussing salvation by faith, not works, five years before Luther had even come up with the 95 Theses. Wow. So I know it's pretty interesting. Zwingli, too. I mentioned uh, Ulrich Zwingli before. His 67 Theses were also published independent of Luther. So that just kind of goes to show how ripe Europe was for reform. That yeah. so many people were longing for this. the spirit was working. The spirit was moving. That's mm-hmm. so true. And people were longing for this. So Luther really just became kind of the primary catalyst for something that was already being stirred up by the Lord. So... In 1523, de Table had even translated the New Testament into French. And so, I mean, he was, wow. yeah, very forward-thinking, mm-hmm. very, very bold and brave. And so he was very significant to the French Reformation and naturally a major target of the Catholic Church. I mean, they came after him hardcore. And that's where Marguerite steps in. Because of her position and influence, she was able to intercede for him uh, when he was condemned as a heretic. And, you know, all these guys were thrown in prison at different times, and she would petition Francis for their release. Later, he would seek refuge at her home, her castle in um, Navarre, many times. And so, um, you know, again, this is where she really um, started to, you know, not just 
espouse the views, but align herself and say, I'm one of you. And even if that means I'm putting myself under fire by protecting you guys. She also protected uh, Louis de Berkin, who translated Luther's works into French. They'd all been banned, but he started translating them secretively anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also protected an entire university, (laughs) the University of Bourget, which was where John Calvin and Theodore Beza had studied. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean... Really, really, again, putting herself out there for the sake of the gospel, really, and the, you know, just the furtherance of the Reformation movement. She, at times, she almost would push Francis too far <laughs> when interceding for these people, but usually she got her way in the end. Like I said, he he just loved and respected her. And so, you know, he would kind of try to turn a blind eye <laughs> to some of the things she was doing. In fact, he himself benefited from her diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, one time he got captured by the king of Spain, Charles V. And Marguerite was the one who traveled to Spain, negotiated for his release. So she could always kind of say, like, remember when I did that for Saved you? Saved your back? life. Yes. Yeah, I kind of got a little, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something she could always kind of bring up. So Marguerite was very well-read and intelligent. Like I said, she um, even translated some of Luther's writings herself. She must have been inspired by these other men. She studied Spanish, Italian, German, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and she began writing poetry in 1523. And she came to be known as one of the greatest poets of that era, which is interesting, and the first published female poet among the Protestants. That's interesting. So, I know, yes. right? Right. So her probably her most famous work is called the Heptameron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But it was basically a series of tales of medieval society. It's very similar to Canterbury Tales kind of a thing, just some kind of fictional fun stories about the medieval period. But she included kind of these underlying moral, spiritual themes. And by the time she wrote this, this was a little bit later on, and she had to kind of stay on the DL at that point. Things were getting really heated against the Protestants in France. And so she had to put a lot of those deeper spiritual truths kind of buried, hidden within the within the stories. But kind of like George MacDonald did that, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So just weaving it in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was one of her most well-known works. I was actually reading. There's all kinds of... Um, like academic articles about this where people are analyzing the heptameron and trying to find the underlying themes wow, and stuff. Yeah, interesting. it's kind of interesting. So uh, she also wrote The Mirror of the Sinful Soul. This was probably her other most well-known work after the death of her son and mother. And it was based on Psalm 42. Now, how did you... she have a son? Oh, we'll get to that. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes. I know. I'm kind of just doing her works and then we'll come back into her biography. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, wait Good a second. Point. I thought you... she didn't have That's any children. Wow, you are very astute. Okay, okay so... <laughs> I didn't even think of that when I put these notes together. Well, inquiry minds want to know. That's right. (laughs) Uh, So it's based on Psalm 42, the psalm that says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? So she kind of bases it off that theme. This is, like I said, one of her most well-known works. And one historian said uh, that it draws on Catholic and mystical antecedents, reprises aristocratic conventions of courtly love, and anticipates reformist notions of faith as the pathway to God. So you see the bridge between her Catholic and her new Protestant faith. And uh, she actually wrote several reformist pieces, which is crazy. I think she wrote most of this stuff in poetic form. She wrote these works called Justification by Faith, The Doctrine of Election, and The Primacy of Scripture. I don't know how you put all of that into a poem, but that just shows how amazing her mind was to be able to put all these deep theological things into into poetry and that something that people could find beauty and connect with. 
uh, very accomplished woman. You know, when we get on later, though, when we talk about Grace Livingston Hill, mm. um, she was a woman who became a popular fictional writer in the 30s, okay. 1930s. But she used her books as a way to tell the story of Christ and to bring these oh, other things in, but never, uh, you know, outspokenly, so to speak. Right, right. Obviously. It wasn't just straight. Right, through, right. Obviously. No, no. It was very subtle. But that was a way for her to evangelize and reach I love people. that. I Just love like that. George McDonald, too, which so is cool. interesting. Yeah. So I, I'm loving this. Yeah. And Marguerite was like that. And she did actually have to kind of mm-hmm. be subtle and careful because, remember, she is still French royalty. And so she can't just be boldly out there all the time mm-hmm. uh, with her writings. In fact, when she was later, her works would get condemned. And so mm. but, that, but you know, she did, you know, she, <laughs> she did what she could. So um, Margaret King says that Marguerite was one of the major female authors of the age. And Will Durant said that in Marguerite, the Renaissance and the Reformation were for a moment one. In fact, she's kind of considered a really um, prominent Renaissance poet, interestingly enough. So she's again, she's bridging a lot of these time periods here, the Renaissance, the Reformation, Catholicism and the Protestant movement going through. Um, I want to read just a little sample of Mirror of the Sinful Soul here because you see just her love for the Lord, Scripture, and it's it's just, it's beautiful the way she expresses herself. <clears throat> what is it then that can cause my severance and separation from the grace of God? Certainly not the magnitude of heaven, nor the deep profundity of hell, nor the great expanse of all the earth, not death, not sin, though fiercely both besiege me. None of these things can for a single day deprive me of the all-embracing love of God my Father through Jesus Christ his Son." For his love is that perfect kind of love that loves me, even if I love him not, and loves me doubly, though he is not loved. And so, like I said, Romans eight, isn't it? Exactly. She basically just expresses Romans Mm -hmm. eight in a poetic form, Mm -hmm. you know. And again, this was in French, and so people could read that and connect with scripture in a different way. It was just very fresh. You know, again, it shows, like I said, that she knew the Lord. I mean, she knew doctrine. Pretty impressive. So the theology faculty at the Sorbonne actually tried to have her writings condemned. They recognized the Lutheran nature of these. That's what they said. This is very Lutheran. But once again, Francis stepped in, helped his sister out, prevented them from being condemned. And so they were able to be published and circulated around France. So it really paid to have this high connection for her. So I, I love how the Lord just used her in this position and gave her that influence and those open doors. And so Marguerite's husband, Charles, died of battle wounds in 1525, getting back to her first husband there, the political marriage. And so two years later, she married Henry d'Albray, the King of Navarre. And this is when she had Ah. kids. So this is why she's known as Marguerite of Navarre, because of her second marriage. And so Navarre was part of France, but it was kind of like a little buffer kingdom. So it's this very small but very important French buffer zone on the Spanish border. So... You know, France and Spain never had a lot of love between them. And so it was important to have these strategic kingdoms. <laughs> so she uh, bore him two children, Jean, who we will talk about next time, and a son that died within a few months of birth. And that was, like I said, when she wrote Mirror mm-hmm. of the Sinful Soul. It was from that and from the death of her mom. So once Marguerite got settled in Navarre, she went right back to what she'd been doing before, sheltering, supporting reformers. Other ones started coming. This guy, Guillaume Briconet, he was a bishop who did a lot of reform in the church, and he kind of encouraged some of Marguerite's more mystical side that came out in some of her writings as well. A guy named Clement Moreau, who held church services for her in the basement of the castle. One biographer pointed out that if she hadn't protected Moreau, specifically the um, French Psalter, the basically the French hymn book, 
which was used by French Christians for centuries, it never would have been written. It would have been mm. lost forever because mm. Moreau was the one who did that. Interesting. So I know it's interesting. We always point to the people who actually accomplished these things. And sometimes there are a lot of people behind the scenes that made a way for them to do what they did. Right. And so Marguerite was one of those. I think Renee of France actually protected him at one point as well. So already upset by her theological views, her husband, Henry, oh. finds out that she's holding these secret church services with uh -oh. Clement Moreau. <laughs> and so he flipped out. He marches into her chambers and he says, Madam, you know too much. <laughs> and in anger, he strikes her. So he no. hits her in the face. I know. Bad, bad move. Bad Henry. Bad Henry. Because remember, who's Marguerite's brother? Yes. The king of France. That's right. <laughs> I love it. She could always just bring in the big dogs whenever somebody went after her. So she lets Francis know what had happened in her, you know, subtle little way. And he basically, I mean, he freaks out and he comes at Henry and says, OK, is this a declaration of war? I mean, do we need to do this? And so, of course, Henry is really freaked out. He has a little kingdom there, Navarre. And not surprisingly, he begs forgiveness. I'm so, so sorry. And he even agreed. I'll go a step further, he says. I'll listen to the reformers. I will, you know, read some of their literature. Let's see what my wife is so excited about and interested in. And eventually, as a result, he became a support for the Reformation himself. Wow. I know. Excellent. Kind of amazing. So yes. Henry and Marguerite together did much to benefit the Kingdom of Navarre. And this actually reminds me a little bit of Elizabeth of Hungary, mm -hmm. what you were talking about with her before. That they they did a lot to improve agriculture and commerce. They encouraged education for the common people, opened hospitals as well as an orphanage, just really were hands-on in their kingdom. Instead of aloof, we are royals and we do what we mm -hmm. want and we don't care about you. No, they broke that barrier. And again, like I said, like Elizabeth of Hungary, she, Marguerite, would go and really just find out what the needs of the people were and meet those needs. Now, I had heard about Marguerite too, that she... Mm -hmm. She took up the cause of unmarried mothers. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. you know, before the women were getting abortions mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, their yeah. children were impoverished. And that she wanted to provide a place where these unmarried women could have their children and learn hygiene. Mm. And, I mean, that was a very unpopular totally. cause. This and was, that was yeah. one of her causes. Oh, I love that. And again, it just... It just goes to show how remarkable mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. women were. Like, again, like Elizabeth of Hungary. Nobody did that. You know, if you were mm -hmm. a royal, you separated yourself as much That's as possible right. from the common right. folk. Because you could. Yeah, absolutely. And so to purposely make the effort to go and do this, I mean, it was just so amazing. And it shows what happens when the love of Christ constrains mm -hmm. us and compels us. We do things no that nobody in their right mind would do, right? So Marguerite was known as the prime minister of the poor, constantly spending time with the peasants and attending to their needs. Again, as we were just saying, usually women of high estate, those are the ones being served by their people. But in Christ's economy, we know we're called to serve one another and submit to one another in the fear of God. And Marguerite really recognized that. And I think she really understood what Jesus said in Matthew, you know, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And she really took that to heart to live like her Savior. Again, when the love of Christ compels us, we live like Jesus. We go incarnationally, as we always talk about, right, mm -hmm. with the people that he calls us to serve. And so her life really was one of humble service, meeting the needs of those that God put around her without seeking to have her own needs met. So as time went on, you know, we're getting into the 1530s, and now Francis is starting to become much more rigid in his Catholic stance, as the Reformation has really gone too far in his mind. He mm -hmm. really needs to make sure this doesn't happen in his kingdom. And so in 1534, 
he ordered the execution of the heretics, as of yep. course they were known, in yep. France. Yep. Um, but whenever Marguerite was in town, whenever she came to Paris, he would stay the executions in honor of her. He would respect her enough to hold back until she was gone again. And so Francis, but, you know, he, again, he even started to um, but take he, it out on her a little bit. Go ahead. But, too, you've got to remember that he's being influenced mm-hmm. by officials in his court mm-hmm. and especially by Catholic officials. Absolutely. And so it's not all Francis. And right. no wonder he stopped it when his sister was, you know, in town. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he did. He always had a soft spot for her. But with all of that pressure, he did start even making decisions that would negatively affect her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even took her daughter, Jean, away mm. to be raised as a Catholic French mm. princess. Mm-hmm. One biographer said, Marguerite paid a high price for her public faith, perhaps the highest price a mother can pay. Still, she did not allow this grief to end her service to the French Reformation, which is amazing. And you mm-hmm. know what? As we're going to see later, God would honor that faith. And we're going to see that in her daughter, that the Lord kept her daughter in spite of this Catholic and corrupt influence. So in spite of the fact that her brother was now a little bit antagonistic, Marguerite fearlessly continued providing refuge for the reformers the rest of her life. She said, "Okay, well, he's got to do what he's got to do, but I that doesn't keep me from at least turning Navarre into a little um, protectorate, a kingdom where these reformers can find refuge. Even Calvin stayed at her palace in Navarre and they later corresponded with each other, which was kind of cool. So I love Marguerite, like Renee of France, even like Elizabeth of Hungary, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, She could have very easily maintained a sheltered life of of pleasure. As royalty, she could have spent her time on frivolity or even just enjoying prestige and honor from her own intellectual pursuits. She could have done all of her writing for herself and just to make a name for herself. But she was willing to not only listen to the plight of the commoners in her kingdom, which was unusual enough, but to stand with the reformers in the midst of oppression and persecution, risking her own position, her own reputation to do so, even writing stuff in support of the Reformation mm-hmm. that would definitely bring her under fire. Mm-hmm. She was willing to identify herself with them, with the people of God. And it's just so amazing that she was willing to do that. So uh, she went home to be with the Lord December 21st, 1549. And she had once written, Oh my God, that death is fair that takes me from this air. By death, I'm victor in the race. By death, I look upon thy face. By death, I am to thee conformed. So, I mean, I'd encourage you. Her writings are still in print. I mean, now, she wrote some really How old was she when she died? She would have been, sorry, let me count here, 57. 57. So not, not young, but not super old either. And her dying words, this is interesting, her dying words really lead us into a look at her daughter. Like I said in our next episode, we'll talk about her daughter, Jeanne d'Albray. And so Marguerite said as she was dying, God, I am sure, will carry forward the work he has permitted me to commence, and my place will be more than filled by my daughter, who has the energy and moral courage in which I fear I have been deficient. Oh, my. I know. What a <laughs> what a humble statement. And I think yes. Marguerite felt that way because she saw that she was never um, actually able or willing to completely leave the Catholic Church. Her daughter would, would come out even mm-hmm. more boldly than her. But I think, oh, my oh, that's goodness. That's such a I, cliffhanger. That's like just such a good taster <laughs> for, you know, I, I can't wait. Yes. And so I, I, I love Marguerite, though. I mean, it's like, oh, my goodness. You really, I mean, even if you didn't, so you didn't leave the church. I mean, look at the amazing things you did mm-hmm. for the sake of mm-hmm. the gospel. And so, yeah, we're going to get to look at what her daughter did to carry on that legacy even further. So, Boy, that really speaks of a legacy of a mother. That what mm-hmm. a mother can pour into her daughter 
is just really exceptional. Her example, yeah. Mm -hmm. The example she was even to Renee right. France, because we know Renee France did the same thing, sheltering mm -hmm. people. And right. So I, I just love how these women, and that's kind of fun when we were looking at um, the whole Reformation period and all these gals in different countries and yes. the influence they all had yes. and the networking. And yes. And again, when we talked about Elizabeth, when we talked about Marguerite, and we talked about how they could have exempted themselves, but the love of Christ constrained mm -hmm. them to reach the poor, you know, even at a sacrifice yeah. and a a threat to themselves. Yes. They were willing to minister to the impoverished. Right. It's beautiful. When you choose to do that, when, when you don't have to, mm -hmm. that's what's amazing. They didn't have to do any of this. Now, you might not be a princess and you might not know <laughs> a princess, but your story is important. And the stories of women that you know that have influenced you for Jesus are also important. We'd love to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. So if you would write to us, please, <laughs> at wwk at cccm.com. That's right. So if you will write to us, we would love to hear those stories. We've gotten a lot of suggestions that will be featured. I think I've got five books that I need to read at home, but <laughs> that's going to be, we're kind of grouping this one as kind of women in the Reformed. We started with the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. and we're kind of going through that. We're we'll probably through. be going into authors. We want to mm -hmm. do missionaries. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've only just begun. <laughs> I know. And we're getting close to like episode 100 here. And we're like still yes. I mean, just scratching the surface, folks. That's right. There's so many <laughs> women worth knowing yes because any woman who knows jesus is a woman worth knowing absolutely so thanks for joining us this week and remember next week we've got jean delbray delbray <laughs> so join us for an episode all in french no that's not really right. no, well, no 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 <laughs> <laughs> no pressure not with these two all right so again we'll see you next week bye Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.